0: There are six special elections for vacant Missouri House seats up for grabs on Tuesday, but the one everybody's watching is the St. Louis County-based 99th House District. Democrats are bullish about Trish Gunby capturing the traditionally Republican district that takes in Valley Park, Manchester, and Twin Oaks.
1: When I started hitting doors, people started saying to me, thank goodness a Democrat is running and that we can take back this seat and we can make a difference for those residents in the 99th district.
0: Republicans are mobilizing behind Leanne Pittman in a race that may have broader implications for the future of St. Louis County and Missouri politics.
1: With success on November 5th, I believe that speaks that the district wants to have conservative representation in Jefferson City.
0: On this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and I talk about the stakes of the 99th district house contest. We also talk about the turmoil over a nearly $20 million verdict awarded to a St. Louis County police officer. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk
1: in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop.
2: And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I
0: didn't have the money. (laughs)
1: Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm Julie O'Donohue, your host, and I'm here with my co-host...
0: Jason Rosenbaum.
1: And this is our roundtable show where we talk about this week's news.
0: Yes, and it's also Halloween when we're recording this, so it's spooky.
1: (laughs) There was also a lot of news this week.
0: Just a little. I was actually talking with my wife at uh, Posteria, of all places, and complaining to her how it's been really slow the last two weeks. That was Saturday, and then Sunday happened and now I wish I never had that conversation with her because we've both been literally buried in work right now.
1: (laughs) So let's get into it. So I guess I feel like the big story of the week in the St. Louis area has to do with what's going on with the police department, and I guess it's kind of expanded out in some ways to the St. Louis County government.
0: Right, and for People that haven't understood the, the context behind this, first of all, I'd recommend reading the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's rundown of the trial. They by far did the most thorough and comprehensive job of covering this story, and they deserve a lot of credit. Sergeant Keith Wildhaber was de- continuously denied a promotion to, from sergeant to lieutenant. And if you read the actual brief, it it showcased that a lot of this came after a member of the board of police commissioners told him to tone down his gayness. And there were also other officers who had talked disparagingly about the fact that he was gay.
1: And for people who don't follow these things a lot, um, one of the ways that people get caught in these lawsuits, caught, if you will, is if they retaliate against someone who complains. And in this case, Um, there seems to be some strong evidence that he was retaliated against. I
0: think it's if you look at the timeline, um, he issued his first complaint and then he was transferred shortly thereafter. So anyways, he was the the jury awarded him around 20 million dollars. And after that happened, uh, St. Louis County Executive Sam Page announced that he was going to make some big changes to the police board, which oversees. The police department and also has firing power over Chief John Belmar. All of, as of the time you hear this podcast, I believe all five members of the police board will be operating on expired terms, which means that Page could hypothetically appoint an entirely new police board. And and I think that as the week has gone on, there has been some question about whether the appointment of a new police board will lead to to Belmar's firing. There's also just been speculation that these events that I just described are kind of setting in motion motion maybe a voluntary retirement, though from a statement from a St. Louis County Police Department official, he continues to lead the men and women of the, the County Police Department. I think that there's probably some questions about who would replace Belmar. If you don't have a new police board confirmed, it would probably make the transition process a lot more difficult. I think that there's probably other people that really don't feel that Belmar should go.
1: Yeah, I think between the two of us, we've talked to everyone in recent days, except for maybe Councilwoman Rita Days. I think Uh, so. um, And the reactions vary from people who want the chief to stay. Uh, Notably, Ernie Trachis is in that camp uh, as the presiding officer of the council to Rochelle Walton Gray told me yesterday she had not really made up her mind about how she felt about it.
0: But I do want to mention to our listeners, I think this is really important to understand. I mentioned before that the board has hiring and firing power over a police chief. The county council and county executive cannot fire a police chief. There obviously are indirect ways of doing that by appointing a police board that would set in motion Belmar's dismissal. But the reason that this setup is supported by a lot of people is it creates a barrier between elected officials who sometimes make decisions based off political concerns, and sometimes they make decisions based off real concerns, too, um, and the police department. The the city of St. Louis does not have this barrier anymore after local control. And I think that there is a bit of hesitancy to have the elected officials be the actors behind the chief's immediate dismissal.
1: I think you're totally right about that. I think, um, at least I've heard that although not, not officially from the county executive, that he's probably going to appoint three people. There are five positions, three new people. I do think because there is that barrier, uh, you're going to see some county council members asking very pointed questions about whether the people that they would confirm to the board that uh, County Executive Page has nominated, whether those people support sh- Police Chief Belmar. And in fact, I have a... Clip from Councilman Fitch uh, indicating that he's going to ask just that. What is their goal going in? Is it to improve the police department so they can deliver a better service to the public, Uh, or is it just to go after certain individuals, such as the chief? Is that is that what their agenda might be?
0: The appointment of this police board goes long beyond just whether Belmar stays or goes. They're going to have major power to oversee big changes to the police department and just to oversee day-to-day matters. And I don't think you can really just rubber stamp these appointments either, even under normal circumstances because without, without a lot of hyperbole, this is probably one of the most important set of appointments Page will make during his county executive tenure.
1: I think we should probably move on to the other aspect of this conversation, which is it's brought up some questions about whether county government is really all that concerned with LGBT protections. It's, it's come out that the county had argued in court that maybe Sergeant Wildhaber shouldn't have even been able to sue because under state law, uh, you're not allowed to sue for workplace place discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. I'm not going to go into how he got around that because <laughs> it's a little bit complicated. It's very
0: complicated, but for to make it very short... Uh, Sergeant Wildhaber sued under gender discrimination.
1: It's upset some people that the county, which purports to be inclusive and friendly towards LGBT people, used an argument essentially saying, "Well, because there is no standing to sue in under state law uh, for discrimination based on sexual orientation, this lawsuit should be thrown out." Now that that is. In fairness, a sound legal argument, there is no LGBT workplace protections at the state level, um, but it rubs some people the wrong way that the co- that the county attorneys argued that way. In fact, it rubs the county executive the wrong way.
0: Yeah, and he, he issued a really scathing statement about it, and also uh, county counselor Beth Orwick also issued a scathing statement. I don't want to veer too much into the realm of opinion, but I have a pretty strong principle that people that represent entities sometimes make arguments because they're doing things in the best interest of their client, even if those arguments may seem distasteful. I'll go back to the Eric Greitens situation. I thought that the ex-husband who revealed the affair was one of the worst people that I've ever encountered in journalism. But I wouldn't blame Al Watkins, who was representing him for you know vigorously advocating for him, because if you don't do that, you could get in legal trouble because you're not you're not working to the full extent to your client's benefit. And that may be what happened here. But at the same time, like the county executive does control the county counselor's office. And I do think that he should have a say on what sort of legal arguments get put forward. If he doesn't agree with this, then it shouldn't have been put forward. So.
1: Right. I think there's a question. I think what made the difference to me, to your point, You know, I I initially was kind of like, well, what is the county attorney supposed to do? They're supposed to keep the liability to the county at a minimum. And this is an argument they can use to make sure, for example, a $20 million verdict doesn't get handed down, right? That that person, even if they were discriminated against as a gay officer, doesn't have standing to sue. It may be something that that county attorney doesn't agree with personally. We don't know. um what what kind of was different about this situation is um, County executive Page and Beth Orwick, the um the, basically the lead attorney for the county, both said that they had instructed staff not to use that argument specifically, and I think that's where it becomes uh, a little bit more interesting.
0: Yes, definitely. I think that's a wrinkle that kind of goes beyond the principle I just mentioned. Um, I do think it's bringing up a broader conversation about how Missouri does not have LGBT protections if you're discriminated against. And the long and short of it is that if you were fired from your job because you were gay, lesbian, or transgender, and you tried to sue because of that reason, you wouldn't be able to. Now, you can use the alternate pathway that I alluded to, and I'm not going to get into because it's extremely complicated, but I think that not having those protections may make certain employers more emboldened to discriminate because they may think there's no consequences to it. So it, it certainly will provide a high profile uh, catalyst to that issue.
1: Anyways, let's move on. Jason, I hear there's a special election coming this week.
0: There are actually six special elections coming this week, but there's really only one we should care about. No, no offense to Rasheen Aldridge. I, I'm sorry I didn't cover your unopposed special election in the 78th mm-hmm. district. But most people in Missouri are focused on the 99th House District, which takes in cities like Manchester, Valley Park, Twin Oaks, um, western St. Louis County. It's between Democrat Trish Gunby and Republican Leanne Pittman. Usually, this contest probably wouldn't get a lot of attention in a regular election year. This is a traditionally Republican district. West County is traditionally Republican. But due to a lot of factors, and I, I would probably... I would probably bring Donald Trump's unpopularity in St. Louis County as the number one factor. Um, Areas like this have become a lot more competitive in the last couple of years. And because it's a special election and because turnout's going to be lower, um, there is real hope from a lot of Democrats that they can capture this seat. Gunby has raised, I think, well over $100,000. She has a very sophisticated campaign organization and, She's taking a similar strategy to Senator Jill Shoup did in 2014 against Republican Jay Ashcroft. That district was purplish too, but neither Shoup nor Gunby have tried to out-conservative their opponent. They've been very upfront about what they believe, and they're really exciting a lot of of left-of-center progressives. And I think that if Gunby can win this race, holding progressive views in a district that's traditionally Republican, it's going to be a very bad sign for Republicans being able to hold any meaningful power in St. Louis County.
1: One of the interesting things about this race is who held the seat previous.
0: Yes, Jean Evans. She is the executive director of the Missouri Republican Party, and uh, she only won reelection by about six percentage points. And it wasn't like she did anything that made her like a lightning rod are controversial. She was a fairly effective legislator, and she worked across party lines on a host of issues. I definitely think she personally is taking a lot of attention to this race. I know that Republican committees have invested a lot of money into running not-so-nice things about Gunby, which I think everybody expected. That's what they usually do in competitive House and Senate races. We'll just have to see if that's effective. I know a lot of Democrats are really excited about Gunby. But I also know that a lot of Republicans are excited about Pittman and they're working hard for her.
1: I think that we've talked to a couple of people about this race and and Democrats seem to want to draw big conclusions about it, about particularly about I'll I'll say this like moms, like how moms are feeling about voting, yes. um, particularly on issues maybe like guns, maybe um, some Trump bash, backlash
0: and possibly abortion, too.
1: Correct. Yeah. Abortion is another one. Suburban moms. Um, and I think if um, if if the Democrats win, I think there's going to be a lot of talk about how this is indicative of a big change. But it is a special election. Yes. Um, and I often get wary about drawing conclusions about special elections. I think Representative Dogan, who admittedly is a Republican, uh, also said that we should be wary of doing that. So where, where do you come down on that? Should we be drawing conclusions if the Democrats take this seat?
0: L- locally, yes. I think if Democrats are able to take this seat, even if let's say they lose it in 2020, if they're able to be continuously competitive in West County, then first of all, Republicans are never going to win any meaningful countywide office in St. Louis County again. That's probably a foregone conclusion anyways. And I think that means they're going to have to invest a lot more money in the future into defending previously Republican seats, which may take away resources from elsewhere. But where I do agree with uh, Representative Dogan is just because Democrats make gains in St. Louis County does not really fix their statewide problem. They're still doing really poorly in other suburbs like St. Charles County, Jefferson County, Lincoln County, Cass County, Buchanan County. Like people forget that conservative suburbs are also suburbs. And when Democrats are losing Jefferson County by upwards of 10 plus percentage points, they're not going to win statewide races.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask my next question, which you kind of answered was, you know, ultimately, even if all of the seats in St. Louis County in the legislature went Dem, would that make a difference in Jeff City?
0: In the Senate, possibly, because you might have two or three extra Democrats who could like cause a lot of a lot of problems. But the Republicans would still have the majority in that instance. And Republicans have made gains in, like, Jackson County. For example, the Independence area, which has been Democratic since Harry Truman was around, has become much more competitive. So it's not a zero sum game is basically what I'm saying. And I didn't even mention the fact that Democrats are doing abysmally in rural Missouri. They cannot keep getting 20 percent in rural counties and expect to win statewide offices.
1: We're going to take a break and when we come back we'll be talking with St. Louis Post Dispatch reporter Joel Courier. And welcome back. We're joined by Joel Courier, a courts reporter with the St. Louis Post Dispatch. He's going to talk to us about an article he wrote uh concerning St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bells uh expense reports over the last what is it, Joel, like year?
2: Yeah, since he took office, basically okay. in the beginning of 2019. Um, thanks for having me, by the way. You're uh, welcome. Appreciate <laughs> the chance to be here and talk about the story. <laughs> we posted uh, uh, last week on our website, and it ran in Sunday's paper. Uh, I was taking a look at Wesley Bell's uh, spending, kind of discretionary spending, since he took office, and compared that to his predecessor, Robert McCullough, who Wesley Bell defeated in the August 2018 primary. So I just wanted to look at, you know, what he was spending his money on. And kind of what I found was that he, so far through, well, through the end of September, that's kind of where I cut it off, um, he spent about $34,000 on travel to conferences, business trips, and on uh, meals. Basically taking people out to lunch and dinner, including his own staff.
1: Can you give us a few specifics?
2: Sure. the kind of the lead of the story was about this trip to Miami in April, and um, Wesley Bell took about six staffers out to a, uh, a, a place called Prime 112, which is like an uh, Ocean Drive on uh, in Miami Beach. And uh, the bill came to about $816, not about, $816.19. That included uh, racks of lamb, uh, veal chops, uh, something called lobster tempura, uh, some fairly extravagant uh, dinners. and uh, anyway he put Bell put it on his credit card, his county credit card and uh, you know came to 816 bucks and 19 cents um, And so I had started hearing about some of the expenses um, that his office was spending on and uh, asked for some records and that was about end of April. Um, they spent I don't know what what took so long but it took about three months for his office to, to produce the records and when I got them there was several, uh several items missing from the expense records and i was like well what's that about um i don't understand why they why things have been stripped out of the records so can you explain
1: (laughs) can you explain uh when you say there are items missing how do you know they're missing uh
2: there were so i asked for wesley's credit card uh statements um that show exactly what he spent money on and there were lines blanked out uh, just a white line through the expenses and you know, I was just wondering what that was about. So uh, not satisfied. I went to a different department in St. Louis County and asked for those records and got the same records from fiscal management uh, without any redactions. Redactions for, you know, people um, who may not request these things all the time or things that are stripped out of records because they don't believe they're they're public. And so I received these records that showed some of the dinners, and uh, I added up all the things that had been stripped out of the records from Bell's office, and it came to about $2,100 of mostly dinners, including the Miami meal. Um, there was a hotel stay and some other expenses, Uber rides. And uh, so reported on, you know, what, what was missing from those records and sat down with Wesley and asked, you know, hey, why, why were these omitted? $34,000, is that just Wesley Bell or is that Wesley Bell and his staff? That is Wesley Bell and his staff. How many staffers
0: are you, were you counting?
2: Well, I mean, it's different for each trip. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just uh, one or two with him on a trip. Uh, for the Miami trip example, I think I think he took probably six or seven staffers with him. And and you mentioned that you compared it to
0: Robert McCullough, and wasn't it like a ten thousand dollar difference or something like
2: that? It was about a fourteen thousand dollar difference um, through the first nine months, um, you know, year over year. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at McCullough's spending in two thousand eighteen. Uh, his last year in office, and um, you know, the largest expense on on his credit card, at least in terms of meals, was uh, was like about a five hundred dollar dinner at uh, a place in Brentwood when he took out some uh, relatives of this investigator who died last year, sort of as a funeral reception.
1: What made you want to look at uh, Wesley Bell's expenses?
2: I mean, that's a good question. I, I you know, as a as a beat reporter, looking uh, doing the courts beat. Um, I started hearing from people saying hey, you should take a look at this. There's some things on there that you might be interested in. So um, I figured it'd be it'd be a worthwhile story to look at what he's spending this discretionary funds on. And um, you know, then I thought only fair to see what his predecessor did.
1: So just to clarify, you first asked Wesley Bell's office for the records. You didn't necessarily get all the information that you thought you needed. You went and asked a different county. Uh, agency that would have the information and you cross check them. What did, since we've brought it up, what did the prosecutor have to say about why the information was missing from his records that you found somewhere else? Or not missing, but not available.
2: Sure, sure. Well, one of the reasons he said they were omitted was because he paid them back. He paid about almost $2,100 worth of expenses back, and that included some different meals, some in St. Louis, some out of town. Um and also some transportation costs and a hotel stay. Um, he felt that because he paid them back, they were no longer a county expense paid for by the taxpayers. And therefore, he didn't feel like he had to disclose those. Um, obviously, a different agency in the county felt differently that this was a county expense, regardless of whether it was reimbursed. Uh, it should be part of the public record. So, um, And when I asked the other agency for the records, I got them within days, not months. Wesley Bell's office took about three months to to produce them.
0: So I just want to say that I thought your story was very thorough, and I also was very glad you compared it to the previous prosecuting attorney. And it should be noted that Wesley Bell has pointed out on Facebook that he doesn't think this was a witch hunt, that it was done fairly. But we've just gone through a situation in the county where there was a— multi, multi-million dollar deal in Northwest Plaza that cost the taxpayers millions more dollars. We saw the graft with Steve Stanger, where huge contracts were given out for doing nothing. By comparison, is what, hap- what Wesley Bell did, even going out to like a very fancy dinner, really compared to those types of things, in-, in your opinion?
2: Well, I mean, I try not to give opinions because I'm a reporter, but sure. I mean... When you look at the amount spent compared to his overall budget, which is about $12 million, $34,000 is nothing. I mean, it's a tiny amount of money. But I think if you ask some critics of of Bell's, is this important to you? They say yes. Is he spending the taxpayer dollars responsibly? And if he's going to ask the county for more money uh, this coming year to fund his much-touted diversion programs, which is a big thing for him, diversion programs, by the way, are are ways to keep people out of jail for low-level crimes uh, and, and save the county money that way by not having to incarcerate people. Um, if he's going to be asking for more money in the coming year, how is he spending the money he has that's, that belongs to taxpayers?
1: Um, uh, kind of similar to what Jason's asking, I, th- I think that there's a, or, or I'll say I, I've, I'm new, but there's a lot of scrutiny of, of Wesley's office um, probably because he's trying to do some things differently. I would guess also probably because he knocked out an incumbent. And I guess I want to ask, why do you think his office is scrutinized? Not, I'm not talking about your story specifically, but I mean just the broader question. Right, well, because,
0: because there's been stories about his car. There were stories about, like, people that he's hired. And it should be noted that, you know, a lot of employees have joined a union that is Pretty hostile to the idea of progressive reform, and I'm putting that in air quotes. Nobody can see me, so (laughs) that may be one of the answers. But I want you to speak for yourself, for Julie. Sure.
2: I mean, I I can't speak to the other stories scrutinizing bills. Yeah, Uh,
1: we don't need. I mean, I'm glad Jason brought it up, but we don't need to talk about the Um, other stories.
2: (laughs) I, you know, my guess is that when when someone new comes in with uh, new ideas, and you know Wesley campaigned on fundamentally changing the criminal justice system in St. Louis County. So when someone comes in and completely shakes things up, I think naturally there's going to be some scrutiny on some of the new things that he's doing. now I, i've I've heard, and some of the feedback I got from readers was you know, Joel, you're a racist. you're You're looking at Wesley Bell because he's black. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I decided to do it because I, I think it's important for journalists to hold public officials accountable. Um, but yes, going back, the I think when someone new comes in and has new ideas, they're going to, uh, It's uh, naturally, it's going to be open for scrutiny.
0: I, I agree with you 100%. Just because there's an African-American official does not escape them from scrutiny or from asking tough questions. But was some of the feedback you alluded to that there was kind of a, perception that you were paying more attention to Wesley Bell because he's a black official than a white official? Did you get that a lot after this
2: article came out? I got some of that. Yeah, I think it was pretty even in the the response I got. I mean, I got people also saying thank you for doing the story. Thanks for holding our public officials accountable. So maybe it depends what side of the political spectrum you're on yeah. uh, when making those, those assessments or feedback on the story. But uh, I, I felt like I got it from both sides.
1: So coming back to the story, what do you want people to take away from it
2: what do I want people to take away I mean I think it's important for people to know what their elected officials are doing and I, I think you know uh, as journalists we kind of track the money how it's spent um, whether that's responsible spending or irresponsible I mean I want readers to decide for themselves based on uh, the story what they what they should uh, feel about uh, the office's spending
1: All right. Well, thank you for coming in so much, Joel. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. Um, Okay, we will be right back after this break. And we're back, and it's just Jason and I for the final segment of our show, which I have named Show Me Something. So this week, inspired by the Hyperloop, which Jason can explain what the Hyperloop is.
0: It's a super fast pod travel thingy that will take us from St. Louis to Kansas City in less than 30 minutes mm-hmm. that will cost about 7 to $10 billion.
1: While this sounds like sci-fi, this is something that people are very serious about, including House Speaker Elijah Haar is very serious about this.
0: Yes, I was at a press conference where he talked about a report uh, talking about the Hyperloop, He is very excited about it. You can read about it on (laughs) stlpublicradio.org.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to ask Jason, because I'm looking for recommendations of places to go in Missouri outside St. Louis, where he would want the Hyperloop to take him if he was building it himself.
0: Okay, I'm going to give you three places. The first is Maryville, Missouri. Maryville, Missouri is where Northwest Missouri State is. And it's a lovely town, but it's also a lovely town because there's an incredible Thai restaurant there. That my wife and I eat at whenever she goes to a library conference there. I actually went there twice with our son Brandon and had a lovely time there. It would be very convenient to get there in 30 minutes as opposed to four and a half hours.
1: Do you remember the name of it?
0: I don't. Oh, wow. But I think there's only one Thai restaurant in Maryville.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, So
0: just look for that. The second place I would like to go is Bowling Green, Missouri. People that listen to me on this show know that I am obsessed with Northeast Missouri politics. Bowling Green is the home of Champ Clark, a former U.S. Speaker of the House, who should have become president, if not for Williams Jennings Bryant's treachery. I think America (laughs) would have been much better off if Woodrow Wilson never came close to the presidency and Champ Clark was there instead. But that is a lovely town. And because Champ Clark never became president and never got the chance to become a metropolis that it should have been, And it also has several great restaurants and great people. And then the third place is Columbia, Missouri, (laughs) which is one of the stops where the Hyperloop will actually be going.
1: I suspect you're not alone in wanting it to go to Columbia. Yeah,
0: but not for the reason you think. I don't really care about Mizzou sports. I haven't been to a Mizzou football game since 2008 when Des Bryant was on the Oklahoma (laughs) State uh, Cowboys. I would like to go to Columbia on a more regular basis so I could partake in karaoke night at Eastside Tavern the greatest karaoke night not only in the state of Missouri but in the entire world
1: why is it the greatest
0: well first of all there are very attentive karaoke jockeys that tell you where you are in your place of line there's there's a great selection of songs there's a great atmosphere of people you can go with your friends and that will kind of take the the sting out of the fact that the rest of the people are all 18 to 21 years old and that you're rapidly aging it also has a very spooky, monsterish motif to it. Like there's like all sorts of spooky paraphernalia on the wall. So since this is Halloween, it'd be a very appropriate place to go. I've known the owner, Sal, for well over 10 years. I met a lot of great friends there. And I still try to go there every time I'm back in Columbia for Jefferson City work.
1: Thanks, Jason. Those are great. You can find our stories by going to stlpublicradio.org. Our editor is Fred Ehrlich. Our executive editor is Shula Newman. And our sound engineer is John Larson. You can find Jason on the web
0: at... Jay Rosenbaum on Twitter...
1: And you can find me at J.S.O. Donahue on Twitter. Thanks so much.
0: Werewolf for mitzvah, spooky, scary.
1: Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. Werewolf for mitzvah, spooky, scary. Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. All right. That was
2: that was great, Trey. Okay, it's over. That's a wrap. Oh. The next day what
1: happened? The Toma didn't teach. Oh, I got up in front of everyone to get my little speech.